In 2023, we're asking our readers and listeners to join Pellicle in helping us to become profitable. Every month, we pay writers, illustrators and photographers a fair rate for their work. And this is all thanks to our sponsor Hotburns and Black and the hundreds of people who subscribe via Patreon. We want you to help us hit 500 subscribers this year so that we can create a sustainable resource for Pellicle and so that we can continue publishing more written features and more podcasts just like this one. While Pellicle will always remain free to access, we can only keep our magazine and podcast going thanks to the support of our subscribers. So if this sounds like something you can help with, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash Mag to sign up. We're determined to produce one of the best drinks magazines out there, and we can only do this with your help. Thanks for listening, and now, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Pellicle Podcast with me, Matthew Curtis. Thanks again for joining me. On today's show, I've got a bumper interview and I'm aware I use that term a lot, but I think this might be the longest interview I've ever published. I tried to cut it down a little bit, but I just really enjoyed it. So I've left most of it there intact for you to enjoy too. It's with Topher Bohm and Chris Allen of Sydney, Australia's Wildflower Brewing and Blending, who were over in the UK last summer for Beak Brewery's inaugural These Hills Festival, which happened in the town of Lewis in the Sussex Downs. I was actually meant to go down for that festival myself, but I was unable to make it because of train strikes. Thankfully, a few days later, Topher and Chris were able to make their way north where I had the pleasure of showing them around Manchester and enjoying lashings and lashings of sparkled cask bitter with them, which is what they really wanted to experience. Now, I had met Topher before in 2018 at the Shelton Brothers Festival in Denver, Colorado, and what I experienced then was my first taste of wildflower beers I was very excited to be at this festival, which had some incredible breweries pouring. And when I met Topher, who's originally from Texas, but has lived in Australia for some time, and you'll be able to hear that in his accent. But what I was able to experience was not just how balanced and integrated and clever his beers tasted, but how mindful his approach to that beer making is. You know, on this podcast, I often like to start with this idea of checking in, which I'm not going to do right now because it's a very long interview, but this whole conversation is kind of based on that concept. And what I mean by that is I just like to encourage people to think about the challenges in beer at the moment and sit with those and think about how they affect what we drink and how we think about what we drink. When you are checking in, it's also a time to reflect on the positives and why you love drinking beer. And in terms of this interview, the challenges can come in the form of unpacking the inherent colonialism with brewing beer in Australia using native ingredients, which I won't go into too much detail now because it's covered in the interview. 
But it's a big thing for Topher, something he's very considerate about and something I massively respect him for. There's also a time to reflect on the positives. The fact that we had, for this interview, travelled up to Clitheroe in Lancashire to visit Corto after Topher had listened to myself chatting to my good friend and colleague Katie Mather on this very podcast. And you'll be pleased to know that this podcast was actually recorded upstairs in Corto and Katie joins Topher, Chris and I for the interview. So you'll hear her in this conversation as well. By the way, if you don't know much about wildflower brewing and blending, do read the article we published way back in our early days of the magazine in 2019 by Australian writer Anastasia Prichodko. And that's a really good primer on what they're doing and how different and interesting and innovative this brewery really is. I'll leave that link in the show notes if you want to read more about the brewery. But like I said, rather than give you the usual lengthy preamble, I think I'm just going to go to this interview. Now, it was recorded in a working bar that was open at the time, and I've done my very best to reduce that background noise for you. There is a little bit, but hopefully it doesn't disrupt your listening experience too much. This is Topher Boehm and Chris Allen of Wildflower Brewing and Blending from Sydney, Australia. Please enjoy this wonderful interview. Hello, everyone. First, hello, Chris and Topher. How are you, folks? No, I'm Matt. I'm great. We are very, very well. Thank you, Matt. And for Kate, and Kate, how are you? It's, it's very nice to be here. How are you, Katie? I'm good. It's awesome to have you all here. So, Chris and Topher, uh, or Chris Topher, <laughs> I should say, that didn't take long, did it? <laughs> uh, you've been in the UK and Belgium for uh, a couple of weeks now. Um, to tell us about your trip. Why are you here? Many things, but also before we get started, thank you again for having us. Oh, it's my it's, pleasure. I'm read your work since Total Ales one long time um, and I have to say like not to make you too embarrassed that the way that you talk about beer and write about beer and beer culture um, definitely has influenced the way that I approach it and, and view it in a way that makes it um, for everyone uh, rather than something that is either driven to a certain market or a certain style flavor like for a flavor of style um, so I've very much taking cues from the many, many years, so it's a great pleasure to finally be on the podcast. Um, so I think we'll stop it there. Okay, yeah. Uh, I think it's <laughs> getting really loud for yeah. no reason down there. It's it suddenly got really rowdy What's in the bar. What's happening? Do you know what? Um, it's, I will caveat for everyone listening we're in a bar and we're just going to roll with it because uh, you're in Corto. We, like, this is, I decided to, to come and record in Corto, so you are, you are in Corto with us. Classic so pl- Sunday afternoon. So vibes. please enjoy the Corto afternoon vibes. So you were just down in Lewis for yes. the, the Beak Festival. How yes. did that go? It was, it was great. Lewis is a beautiful town. Um, I've been fortunate to travel to the UK a couple of times before before this trip. Um, but the, the town was beautiful. It was really, really nice to be able to drink Harvey's directly off the uh, cask. Um, and the festival was fantastic. Uh, we hadn't had a chance to meet the team from Beak beforehand, but in all of the exchanges um, that we'd had in the lead up to it, definitely felt quite familiar being there. And of course, we were just surrounded in a field by 700 at a time, lovely, lovely, lovely people. 
so many of the brewers as well um, that attended that festival um, I have had um, many interactions with online and being in Australia we are quite geographically separated from the rest of the world so it was a real pleasure to finally put real real life faces to names and um, carry on conversations that were started um, in the digital realm but doing it personally which is which is for me um, having a conversation around beer is, is way more important than about beer uh, so we always uh, it was a real, real pleasure yeah, and the idea of travel was, I think, in the past we took for granted, and then obviously the last few years have been a pretty challenging time for, for everyone, and so it was just really nice to get on a big plane. <laughs> uh, the trip itself wasn't as nice, uh, but once we got here, um, yeah, for me, a, a trip of many firsts. Um, my first Cascale, um, standing in a field. First ever Cascale. First ever Cascale, yeah. Which was was that? And was that? Which was your first pint? Was it Harvey's? It was Harvey's, yeah. At the Snowdrop in 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 Lula. So it's, it was a very good way to start my cast drinking career. Um, <laughs> That's a wonderful not, way to start. Sure Did they tell you where the pub got its name from? Everyone thinks it's named after the flower, the snowdrop, but it's actually named after an avalanche yes. that fell from that cliff that it overlooks. Yes. But that Harvey's is your first cast beer. Yeah. That's quite something. And we just we were just in the new inn. KT took us down to the new inn. One of the one of the one of my favourite pubs in the UK. For, and how how did that compare? Did you did you notice regional differences? I mean, it, it, there's a certain difference to the northern serve. That's um, a, a very leading question. Man. It is. Um, <laughs> I, I enjoyed both the north and the south Cascales for, for, for different reasons. Switzerland. So I am a fan of the sparkler idea. <laughs> I'm glad we, I'm glad we uh, won like you over. Um, but uh, Harvey's bitter on cast, it was, a, it was a good introduction for me. For me, there's, there's, there are two bitters that are the best introduction, and Harvey's is one of them, and Timothy Taylor's Landlord is probably mm. uh, the other. Uh, hopefully you'll get a chance to try that before you fly back uh, tomorrow, I think, don't yes. you? And, and you also went to Belgium? We did, and France. And France? Yeah. Uh, how, how was that? What did you get up to when you were on the continent? Well, you asked at the beginning the reason for the trip, right? And there's been uh, lots of things that are sort of bound up in, in doing this. Uh, as I mentioned to you before as well, we both Chris and I have very young families and that's vastly a more important part of our life than what we do for work. Um, we take that pretty seriously and, sorry, very seriously. Um, and I actually have a very, very young young son, um, Edward, who's born in May. Congratulations. So thank you very much. Um, and, and two other children as well. Um, so he was about six weeks old when we left um, and we knew that this trip was uh, important for a lot of reasons and we had sort of built up for it, but it also became even more important with the sacrifice that our families are making at home by, you know, minding children and, and us being away and doing things that from the outside look like we're just partying across Europe. Um, but on the inside, we needed to make sure that we were making the most of this trip. So um, in many ways, coming to the UK was driven by uh, this masthead itself, um, Pellicle, um, and and getting a chance to finally sit down and have a pint with you, Matt, after uh, many years. Of, many, many years, yeah. Of, of, um, yeah, I, guess, I suppose following each other's work. And uh, the trip to Beak was great in order, because we have started selling a little bit of beer here in, in the UK. Um, very, very little amounts. I mean, we, we, we make... I think uh, I buy most of it. <laughs> <laughs> we make a, an absurdly small amount of beer, um, and about 95% of it is sold in Australia. And of that, about 40% of that is sold 
from our cellar door. Um, those are completely rough numbers. Uh, I'd have to look to Chris to tell you. That's what it feels like anecdotally. I was just ish. like, ish. Okay, cool. Um, but the trip became very, very important for us, um, not only to uh, see so many people that we'd spoke about, be here at Corto as well, Katie, thank you, because after hearing about the, the, the bar, myself living in northern Spain, having a connection to the Ribble Valley, Ribble Valley, probably, um, it was just too much to, to not, how could we come this far and miss it? And I think that's, a, that's often a, a thing, you know, people come to Australia, they think, we we'll go to Sydney, Melbourne, Ayers Rock, you know, sorry, Bullaroo. I don't know why I've forgotten what I said, Ayers Rock, that's bizarre. Um, and people, people travel uh, quite vastly in Australia in a way that I've lived in Australia for 13 years and I've never been to Uluru. I've never been to, you know, the, the Red Centre. Um, I've never been to the Northern Territory either. Um, but those are very, very far places. Um, and I think that's often when you do that, you go to another country. When you're living there, you don't travel. But we've come here and we've gone, no, 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 we're packing it in. What's, what's, a, what's a trip up to Manchester? What's an hour and a half train up to, was it hour 20 or whatever yes. it is, to Corto? Everywhere's crossing. Um, everywhere's crossing. So, so the, yeah, the trip to Belgium um, and France was really a trip to introduce Chris to that, the beers of that region, and particularly the way the beers served and thought about and had. Um, I'm much like yourself, Matt, very uh, fascinated by the by beer culture itself and the way that uh, pubs operate in different areas. I mean, not just, not just pubs, but brasseries in, in France. Who's drinking the beer? What types of beer they're drinking? Um, and Chris and I have worked on this, this little project, Wildflower, for about seven years now. And um, he hadn't had the chance to enjoy some of the beers that had inspired that entire process for me. So a massive... Uh, hats off to you for sticking in that long before getting the, the chance to um, enjoy the foundational beers. So that was really the main uh, main part of being in Belgium and France, was visiting old friends. I'd had a really amazing year in 2015, not only living in northern Spain and Santander, um, but also being able to, to fly very inexpensively to into Charlois Airport via the uh, amazing first-class airlines of Ryanair, and um, take take uh, a car and, and travel travel around Belgium and become sort of indoctrinated in a way, but also incredibly inspired by the way that these beers, um, particularly like fit their region. Uh, mm. So maybe less so in the sense of the yeasts being uh, indigenous to those places, but maybe way far far more so the fact that these breweries were not were not set up in order to sell to wider markets. Mm. These were breweries that were family, family run um, and, and uh, driven for their local, local place. So we made some beers together with mentors and friends of mine and also were able to just re revisit um, a couple of other places. So it was a lovely, lovely trip. I'd happily talk about it more, but as I said to you, Matt, I think getting we, me to stop talking is I the, think is we the need trick. to find out a bit more about your brewery. I'd sure. also like to interject to say thank you, uh, uh, mutual respect, uh, you know, uh, I don't have many guests who just open with that, so I just want to, for the record, say thank you. That means a lot. Uh, and just bring you in, Katie. Like, how does it feel to have these guys in your bar? It's awesome because we we had a chat. You reached out on email, and I just thought like this has made my day because we already drank some of your beer, so we ordered it from Distant Lands. Yeah. Uh, but we saw it. We I'd already become familiar with your work through reading the article on Pellicle. Obviously, yeah. it's all down to Matt. Um, <laughs> But I was like, yeah, awesome. We're going to get some of this beer. And um, we got it in. We did like some tastings with some various other mixed firm staff. People really rated it. And it was awesome to do that. Thank you. Um, especially in this 
place we don't get a lot of that around here um, Manchester obviously is fantastic for it but you travel like you say it's literally an hour on the train it's a different world um, it's getting there but when we do our sour beer tasting nights we sell out the tickets like real quick and that didn't used to happen like yeah. people didn't know what sour beer was and we still have a bit of that mm. so to sell out the tickets and people go well flower yeah I've kind of heard of them and they probably read the Pelican article <laughs> or something wow. and then like for you to then say I want to come to Corto well what a pleasure that's awesome <laughs> to hear that because like to be thought of all the way across the world that like blows my mind honestly so thank you very much for coming it's so nice to have you both it's completely our pleasure it sounds like we're in a real cone of I love and I know. Yeah, yeah. It have, totally feels you know, a bit gross, doesn't yeah. it? It's a bit like ass kissy. <laughs> we've, we've had a few. We've had a few beers and we're feeling nice and relaxed. It's a lovely. I've su- had su- one and a half beers. Thank you very much. I, we're just topping up for a few few beers and cocktails the night before. I think. Topper mm. um, <laughs> topping up. <laughs> Topher, I first met you. Uh, I th- it was at Shelton Fest in Denver in October 2018. Uh, it fe- it's one of those uh, thing events that feels like a lifetime ago, but mm-hmm. I can it also feels like it was last week um, Wildflower was in its very early stages there so tell me about uh, tell me about where you were then like, and uh, mm-hmm. how Wildflower began mm-hmm. and then I'd be interested to, to hear what's changed in, in the four or five years since, since we first met but I think tell tell the listeners at home are sh- surely interested in hearing about your brewery your ethos they might not have read the article sure. we talked about yeah, so maybe yeah. we should talk about that first well, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Wildflower uh, started in, we started that in 2015, making beer, um, and really started releasing beer in 2016. So we were very much in the early stages. Um, I am a native Texan, moved to Australia um, right after high school in the US, ended up doing my degree over there and living, living in Australia. Um, but I got into beer, as, as a lot of people do, because you're... Um, a uni student and you think it's cheaper to, to make beer um, than, than to buy it. Um, but uh, I, I fell into a professional brewing career with a, um, with a small brewery that just opened up and um, I was really driven at the time and um, at the time in 2013 and 2014 beer was very much uh, um, Americanized, like particularly the craft beer movement. It was the rejection of light lager. Um, I don't think you need to tell anyone in the UK about ye- yellow, yellow fizzy, whatever, whatever the, the term was. Indeed. Yeah. Um, and uh, there were some things about the market and the way that beer was sold, the way that beer was uh, consumed, the flavors in beer itself that didn't really sit well with me. Um, firstly, among those was the fact that, as I mentioned before to you, Katie, beer was made local, not by where the beer, not by what the beer was brewed with, but just by where the beer was brewed. So you have supermarket suppliers of ingredients uh, selling beers, uh, sorry, uh, malts and hops into breweries, as well as almost supermarket suppliers of, of breweries themselves, selling the same equipment and the same ingredients into different breweries, and breweries beating their chest and saying they're local um, because they're made in a certain place, which is good, it employs local people. Um, but I was also becoming very influenced by the world of wine at the same time. Um, in the same time, in the same year that I was living in, uh, I was living in Spain. I spent some time and worked at a brewery in Texas, breweries in um, in, in the UK, actually brewery in France, um, and a lot of those places had uh, a lot more closer connection between their ingredients themselves and the beers. And also, I was visiting lots of lots of vineyards and I, becoming very interested. I think it's really important to say which those 
breweries those were because it was Jester King yes. for a, a week and yes. then Partisan yes. uh, which listeners of this podcast will be very familiar yeah. with and then uh, the one in France was Brasserie Thierrys yes, yes. Uh, I hope Thierry. I pronounced yeah, yeah, yeah. that correctly yeah. I tried yeah. um, long time listeners of this podcast will know I struggle with French pronunciations but still <laughs> give it a go um, so but yeah I just wanted to add that in because I think that's a really important context because they weren't just any breweries they're all influential breweries in their own right absolutely I mean Partisan was making open ferment lemon thyme saison you know that was kind of their lead beer at the time and unfortunately I was in London recently sorry I was fortunate to be in London but I wasn't able to catch up with Andy at the time um, but what a lovely uh, place that, that that is and people and kind of ethos I think um, so uh, yes sorry I'm back to where I was but the um, Wildflower then was, was sort of a movement away from this uh, idea of being local based on just just, just location um, and also um, a, an acceptance of uh, a realization that beer itself was very much a, um, a product, for, a, a drink for everyone, um, particularly at that time and I think continues to be now. Um, there's a lot of aggression in beer, like the beers are very bold. Um, and I found, because I was recently married at the time, that the beers that um, my wife, uh, Bernadette, ended up drinking of ours that I made were often the ones that had more complexity based on subtlety. So these were things that were, things were, were removed uh, in order to become more drinkable and more complex. So we've kind of started Wildflower on this idea that complexity is not something that's an additive process. You don't add cocoa nibs and chocolate and, and bourbon barrels and all these things and make a complex beer. You actually strip away, um, well, we attempt to strip away back to the very, you know, sort of origin of these raw materials, particularly with a huge focus on agriculture, as I mentioned, the, inter the interest in wine, and allow those ingredients to be sort of be at the forefront of the product, of the beer, and um, not interfere with that too much. And through that, uh, we attempt to make a, a profile of beer, which is um, very subtle, actually. It's kind of the complex, but in, in, in subtlety. So right now we're, we're enjoying our, our sort of one of our favorite beers that we make, which is a 2.9% ABV organic table beer. And um, Chris will know, this, is, this beer causes us more headaches than any other beer out there. Um, there is nothing in this beer other than malt and hops and water and yeast and there's absolutely nothing else. Um, and it's so naked, uh, much like a you know light you know seven degree Czech pills or something like that, that you really would really have to be on point in order to make this beer. But um, for me, this is exactly what mixed culture beer or uh, beers fermented with native yeast can be. They don't need to be um, in this sort of. Uh, echelon of, of, of um, privilege or, or for the vanguard. Um, these, these certainly were beers that were made for, for everyone and that's kind of our approach and I think when you're talking about um, your writing it, 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 it's, it's, it's kind of tied up in that exact same thing. Why not something that's, uh, we call it table beer in the same sense that it's a table wine or a table loaf, something that's well made by um, people in your area with ingredients from your area and you can have it uh, every day. You know, it's something that's not too special. So um, Wildflower is very much built on, on those, those core ideas of, of um, ingredients and in, in influence from place, uh, flavor being uh, something that is open to everyone um, and, and if, if, if you so choose or if you um, don't have an allergy to gluten or something like that, then it can be a drink for everyone. Um, and, and we saw that when we were in, when we were in France recently at Brasserie Alberon, they had this amazing um, little um, restaurant just connected to the brewery. The restaurant actually started before the brewery. 
and you walk through and it doesn't matter age or gender um, or identity of anyone in that in that um, venue everyone was enjoying a cup of beer I mean, there was wine there if you liked but that was not only from the region but the flavors of those beers if you've had them before um, are so welcoming you know they don't need to, you don't need to have someone tell you, you 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 need to enjoy six IPAs before you can enjoy a double IPA you know flavor and palate isn't something that you um, are indoctrinated into everyone has a great palate um, some people are able to describe it in different ways because they focus on it and they care about it but it's like it's like people saying they're tone deaf if you're tone deaf you couldn't understand what anyone else was saying so no one's tone deaf it's just that some people um, focus on it more and I, think, I feel the same way about palettes like it, it's, it's um, everyone's is completely formed by their their previous experiences and it's com- very very well informed they know what they like trust people to, to be able to um, you know uh, know ex- exactly what it is what they like or, or don't like anyway that was a massive no, no that, that was bizarre. wonderful <laughs> that was super interesting yeah. I was just like nodding away yeah. like yes 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 I, I was just going to interject speaking of great palettes we are sat next to Katie Mather like what do you think of this beer it's, we're all praising each other so you get some too Katie <laughs> um, so am I allowed to swear on this podcast yes <laughs> well then please fuck off <laughs> but uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this beer Katie I think it's really delicious. I can't believe it's only 2.9% for the first off. Like, it's just so light, so refreshing. Um, it really does remind me of just like a tinny that you throw like in your bag and take to the park. I love that. Um, that complexity from the like wild yeast that's in there just gives it this other level of like um, satisfaction. It's not really making me think of it like, oh, that's heightened it, that's elevated it. It's just giving me another level of enjoyment to the beer. It's just really accessible. I love that about it. And the fact that it comes in a form pack and what how you've just described the reason for that I love it all over that I think it's a brilliant idea I have a I have a I think to answer the second part of the question so I, I very briefly described um, the brewery you know, mm-hmm. we use native yeast uh, we use um, sorry yeast uh, which is foraged or harvested or Rangord, however you like off of uh, native flowers from New South Wales hence the name wildflower mm-hmm. yes exactly and that's our house culture we use that in every single beer that we make um, we don't we don't have any uh, relationships with any yeast suppliers um, other than Mother Nature herself. Um, every year we might forage a little bit more um, wattle, particularly, um, and add that into the to the culture. But the, all the beers are are made in a very much a bread influenced um, way of managing um, our, our house culture. In that we're just always fermenting things. In fact, I brewed the day before we left on this trip, and I will have to brew within the first three days of landing in order to keep her alive. So the, the house culture alive. Um, so uh, by, by that, that's kind of our base. In the way things that have changed, and that's what I just wanted to mention quickly, was um, we started with entirely New South Wales grown ingredients, and so New South Wales is our state, um, and that is becoming uh, now all of our cereals are sorry, New South Wales cereals. Now all of our cereals are entirely New South Wales, but from single farm um, heritage varietals, regenerative organic farming. They actually come to us with a carbon credit because um, they're grown on soils that are so microbiologically active they sequester more carbon than they emit in the farming of them and then our the maltster that we work with um, actually just won um, best pale malt in the world by the craft maltsters in the US the craft malting guild um, and their maltings is entirely carbon zero as well they use uh, a biochar retort by making making charcoal essentially from um, uh, leftover um, uh, agricultural waste like walnut shells and they use that heat to the malting so that's changed that's changed a lot um, over the time 
Um, and uh, there was something else I was going to mention that's also changed since the article, but now I can't remember. It'll come back you're to me. You're brewing. Yeah. Yes. You, 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 you're make, you're, you have a brewery. You have a contraption. Well, you were brewing, but you have your own a brew house now. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So Wurt is now produced on site. Yes. Which is a, yes. That must make life a lot easier for you. Um, easier, yes, sometimes. Oh, I remember the it second will. thing. I'll get back to it. My focus now is on nourishment a lot, Katie. I was hoping in the what you were saying, you were talking about that other level of something else, and I think that that's what I'm searching for more and more in our beers is through the farming of the ingredients being the way that it is and through the way that we handle the beers. I'd love the, I'd love the beers to give people a sense of satisfaction that isn't necessarily tied to volume. A single beer can be su sufficient. Um, and for me, that's, back, that's, that's baked into this idea of nourishment. So the idea of having a very, I'm a meat eater, but I don't eat, don't eat very much meat, admittedly, um, because uh, we tend to, um, at every time, support the type of agriculture that I, that, that I would do if I was farming um, uh, uh, meat. And we found that in our family, we don't require to eat very much because we might have one, one chicken, one whole chicken a month. Um, and that, uh, along with some, some beef and goat, I really love goat, um, but that, uh, the flavor from that is so um, rich um, because of, I think, the way that the, the, the birds are treated, um, uh, that you, don't, you don't, don't require going over and over and over these things that are built up with, with water. Um, so I, I think that's the other thing that's changed a lot. Sorry, in my ethos of the, of the, of the brewery, in terms of what I'm searching for, just certainly that, that subtlety and that complexity, but also this added kind of intangible thing of, of nourishment. Um, anyway, sorry, yes, brewing contraption yes. is what I call it. This seems um, less interesting about a, than what you were just saying, but it, it, it does feel like a big significant shift in, in how you work and your, yes. your routine. Yeah. No, it has been. Um, so for the first uh, six years of the brewery, um, I was very, very lucky when I finished up my last job to uh, put in my notice um, to my previous employers and then very quickly in the same conversation I asked them if I can still use their brewery house and um, they agreed, thankfully. Um, so just around the corner from Wildflower, um, we're based in, in Sydney, um, so if you're coming to Sydney, uh, we're, we're very close to the airport and we're surrounded by about 10 or 12 other small breweries. And we set ourselves up there in the city um, after not being able to set ourselves up on the farm because of local uh, um, council issues, but we won't go into that because it's very boring. Um, so we, we were meant to be on the farm, but anyway, we, we came into the city and moved ourselves right into Marrickville, which is sort of the Berman's D, I'd say, of, of, of um, Australia, um, but even more, more dense in terms of uh, numbers of breweries. Um, it's an industrial precinct quite close to the city centre um, in what's called the inner west of Sydney, which would probably be the more left-leaning um, area of Sydney. So it's, you know, everything makes sense in terms of where they are. But there's many, many brewers there, and uh, we set up um, quite close to where my, my previous work was, which is a brewery called Batch. And so for the first six years, uh, I was able to contract time on their brew house um, and go brew my own wort on their brew house and bring it back to Wildflower and ferment it there with our house yeast. Of course, like contract brewing wouldn't have worked because I'm not, no brewery should let me uh, with a 10 foot, with a 10, like with it, with, with, from, it would, they shouldn't let me close to their fermenters with a 10 foot pole with our yeast, but it made sense to make the wort there and bring it to ours. And um, Wildflower is not backed by anyone, um, by, well, other than Chris and, and myself. 
um, which the two of us are brothers-in-law, so with our wives together, the four of us um, own the business, um, and uh, we don't have any kind of outside investors. So for us, it made sense to start small, uh, we bootstrapping the business, and allow organic growth um, to uh, increase the amount of beer that we were able to keep in barrel. And by, by being able to contract work, we could kind of scale our production based on what we needed. So if we needed to make two batches one week, you know, that's 1,200 liters times two, so 2,400 liters. We could do that, but if cash was tight and we weren't able to brew that week, we could just move, move off that. So it was a great model for us to start with in the first six years. It really allowed us to be making the decisions that we do around beer, which are always beer focused in terms of what's going to be the best thing for the beer. Um, and so that, that freedom of not having equipment financing, you know, uh, loans looming over us um, has allowed us to make the choices and put that, that we have and put more emphasis on time, uh, really. I mean, our beer has taken an exceptionally long, long amount of time to make. However, um, with my family growing, um, the reality of uh, slotting in brew shifts um, around someone else's brewing schedule, which often included 4.30 early in the morning uh, wake-ups and brewing or weekend brewing or um, just trying to move around other people became um, too much of a difficulty as well as the reality that um, I wasn't able to do all of the things on the brew house that I that I liked I used to I probably would have said four or five years ago that I didn't mind too much about brewing it's um, you know you're just making wort and um, wort making is a very easy thing um, and throughout my brewing career now because because I'm more focused on fermentation admittedly um, but I think I've come back to a place where I really love cooking at home and I really became I fell back in love with the idea of wort making as a cooking exercise as something that was done uh, in homes as a food preservation technique um, mainly by women as well um, but I love this concept of it not being a practice of manufacturing, um, it, so you're not you're not scaling out recipes gram by gram to put onto a fine dining restaurant. You're cooking by tongue. You know you're cooking with taste. Does it need more salt? Does it need this? And so the brewing contraption that I that I sort of designed and uh, developed is this is this um, hodgepodge of uh, a, a 2,200 liter food drum uh, with its top cut off. Um, that we mash into. So we mash into oak. Um, the beer at the moment is filtered over straw, so it's a straw bottom, um, and then the beer uh, is, is filtered, sorry, the, the grains stay on top of the straw, and the wort is filtered through the bottom of the straw into a, um, a vessel, which then we can recirculate that, that back over the top. I won't go too much, but then you... And is the straw, is that sourced from the barley you're yes, using as it's, well? it's actually the wheat chaff. Okay. So, the wheat, so our, our beer, our main beer gold is a 50, 60% barley, 40% raw wheat, um, and it's from the same farm. I mean, I actually asked the farmers, so Chris and Sam Greenwood, who are a very important part of our story, because um, you know when people ask us where, you know, about the story of our beer, it very much starts on their farm in the Riverina, New South Wales, Collie Embley, um, because uh, that's where the, <laughs> the barley is grown. Um, when I asked them, you know, oh, can I have some straw? They were actually quite hesitant because they, they said, well, that's organic matter that our plants are growing and we take the heads off, but that organic matter is really important for the composting on that soil. So you can have, uh, they, they gave me a pallet, so about 10, 10 bales on a pallet. So they give me two, two pallets of straw for the year. And so that's all you can have because we need this 
this is an entirely um, organic system um, and regenerative at that, as I mentioned. But um, they they need that the, the that the chaff to lay back down and recouple and compost as green compost into the soil. But it comes from the same place. So it's literally, um, if you imagine um, wheat, um, a wheat sheaf, uh, you've got the top. Um, which is the heads, and then that's cleaned, and then the seeds come out, and that's what we use as the as the raw the raw wheat seeds. But it's just that middle part, which is the chaff. So same place, we filter through that, um, which was done in the old ways. But I've also made some beer um, with wheat and sorry with straw, and have been I have a I have a um, like a sort of childhood memory of of um, straw. My 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 grandfather grew up. Sorry, my grandfather owned a mill and feed store in Angleton, Texas. Um, so right uh, in south of Houston, so close to the um, close to the um, bay. Um, I'm blanking on the body of water that it is. Anyway, um, the Gulf of Mexico. Thank you. <laughs> wow, I did grow up in Texas, but I'm but I'm going a bit blank. Um, so I have memories of climbing on bales of straw and hay in that mill and feed store. Um, and there's something very primal about that smell for me. And so um, the beers that I've made using it had that, particularly in the word. Sometimes it ferments out and you don't really catch it. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's very homey for me. It's bloody itchy and it's really a difficult thing to work with. Um, so uh, well, if we'll, we'll see how If it's long. difficult, what, why do you do it? Well, because I wanted the beers to have this, like I, I We've designed this piece of equipment that I am, I know I will adapt and change. Um, so the, the copper vessel was built by someone in a distillery, a still maker in, in um, Australia, actually very close to the, to the barley farm. Um, but everything else I've, I've built or you know, got a secondhand heat exchange or things like that, all of the piping is in copper that I've done. Um, I'm okay with the brewery being um, adapted mm. as I work with it if there's things that I I have a background in science and the family is is, is our, our engineers so it, as I'm working with it if I think that there are things that would um, aid in the process in a positive way not necessarily speed it up um, I'm I'm giving myself the freedom to to do that um, but I thought we might start off as raw as it can be um, and again fall back in love with that cooking aspect of it and not 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 depend on pushing buttons to open valves and you know I work making became very boring for me I, I would I would I would just take a book and just be reading books throughout pressing buttons and timers and pressing buttons and I mean that's a lovely way to spend a day reading a book making some work but I also again like I said I wanted to feel the grain a little bit more so we're just starting at that place of just going how could this have been done? And then are there ways that I can improve that? Amazingly though, the the um, I've done a number of batches through this new brewery, new old brewery. Um, the the runoff is incredibly clear through the through the, um, the, the straw. The straw does an amazing job of filtering the beer. It's it's it was actually gobsmacking to me how well it worked the first time. I was very prepared for everyone's first day commissioning a brew house is, is awful and you go home and you're not really sure what you made. Um, we had a couple little hiccups that day, but to be honest, it worked so much better than I actually thought. So it's quite beautiful and the smell, I mean, honestly, I can't, I can't describe the smell of the color is a little bit deeper as well. So I, I like the, interac the interaction of those raw materials with beer. Um, not to go off on a whole other tangent, but beer is a, 
is a unique um, fermented beverage in that the raw materials um, don't influence the fermentation of it in this from a microbiological sense. Mm. Um, if you think of cider, wine, um, even some sake, uh, you can start um, fermentations. You can start. Uh, fermentations with the raw materials themselves. You just crush grapes and there they go. The entire package is on the grape. Same thing with apples. And with sake you can make, um, you know, uh, wet starters off of, off of um, rice beforehand. Um, so, but, but beer we don't do that because beer we boil. Um, so there's less, I feel like, there's less microbiological um, uh, interaction between the raw materials, the grown materials, cereals and hops, uh, and the actual fermentation, um, which I'm not, I'm not like super uh, sad about, but also in the same sense, I, I, I love to have the different aspects of the agricultural inputs to be uh, in the beer, so that you know that beer is an agricultural product. Like it is, we're 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 privy to the seasons in the same way that a winemaker is. Um, we've just kind of been disconnected from that a little bit. So um, I guess that I guess I guess it's just to have. All the different elements in there, and be able to, yeah. It's it's interesting how you talk about beer being unique as a fermented beverage, but your approach to 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 work making and beer making, there there are so many parallels to. And Katie might want to chime in here to, to wine making and cider making. It feels mm. like you are definitely trying to express the ingredients in a way that is true to yourself and and true to 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 what you're making the beer with. Mm. Uh, how do you feel, you know, being compared to a winemaker? Mm. I was actually, I was actually written about once as a frustrated winemaker, <laughs> and I was so confused by that. Never a frustrated my... winemaker. Yes, yes, I was a frustrated winemaker. So winemaker frustrated you're using barley instead of grapes, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> Sounds like a confused. Winemaker. Yeah, I know. It was anyway. I wasn't super keen on that article, but um, I, I'm not dogmatic in a lot of ways. My influences have been as varied as the way that what what dresses the table when people come over to drink. I, I'm not, I don't drink only beer at home by any means. Um, if you live in Sydney, if you know me, you mainly find me at places that serve various wines or sakes, to be honest. Um, I'm really interested in the flavor profiles of those other things. Um, and when we go traveling, I mean, this has been a quite a beer beer trip. But when I do go traveling, it's it's generally not beer that I draw, find myself talking to artisans of, um, uh, unless I'm at a place like like Bread and Sky, or I mean, we were at you know, with Danny at, at, at Phantom, I mean, Brasserie of course. I mean, these are people that I incredibly respect. But I think I, what, what I'm saying is that the influences that have um, pushed me to where we are, um, are are not singular, and so. I just I'm not dogmatic about taking up cues from one place or another. You know, straw is a still used as a well. I don't know if it is so much here, but you can still use it as a filtration when you're soldering when you're pressing apples to make cider. Um, you know, um, why don't we do, you, you can use it when you're pressing grapes? If you just you know grab more grape stems, or if you're pressing grapes, you can throw in straw there to help filtration there as well. Um, I'm not sure why, but I think it's just because I. I sort of like lots of different things. I like talking to people. I'm a very open person, and, and I, I like sort of putting different aspects of their work into what we do. Um, I'm not, my head's not in the sand. Like I'm not trying to do things in this incredibly difficult way because that's the way it used to be done, and I'm not trying to recreate beers from the past at all. Um, but I think I am very, um, um, what's the, uh, um, 
interested in the flavors that the old ways, the old techniques would have made. And so that. Something I'm, I'm interested in, and Chris, you might want to chime in a bit here as well, is that, you know, when I think of uh, Australian craft beer, I think of the first beer that springs to mind is something like Stone and Wood Pacific Ale. Mm. That, that is a beer of, of Australia. And perhaps we can explore that a bit more. But what's the commercial realities of being a, a brewery invested in these kinds of beers? You know, in, in the UK, this the, what you're making would, would have to be a, a side project. You know, it, it, there's, it would be very difficult to, to make money out of doing what you're doing. So what's the reality of making beers and, and co-ferments like you're making? And, uh, and who's buying them? Good question. I, like reflecting back on and talking about where Wildflower started and how and why, I think the um, the idea of us just making three beers to start with, gold, amber, and table beer, and having quite a narrow focus at that time, um, stood us in really good stead. Just having this this narrow focus, trying to do one or two things really well, um, just doing mixed culture. Um, beer uh, was a, a, a good approach because um, in uh, in Australia there are more breweries making mixed culture beer, but it's often a couple of barrels in the back of the brewery. You chuck some beer in there, it goes really sour, and then a couple of years later you pull it out and you've got a barrel broken. Um, and that's there's a, there's a place for that uh, in the market, but for us we um, I think as a business and a brewery just to be focusing on um, on those things as still in good stead. Um, in terms of the, there, there are a lot of parallels uh, from a production standpoint in, with winemaking and then locally the kind of natural wine movement, there's lots of buzzwords and jargon getting thrown around, what is natural wine, what are, what are wild ales. Australia is really at the heart of the natural wine movement in, as well, Certainly. like internationally I would say. It's had a, yes, it's had a big influence on us um, as, as, a, as a brewery, um, focusing on things on sensory, tasting, less technical, organics, or, organics farming, beer being agricultural product, those um, kind of focus points. Um, uh, in a lot of ways, we're more like winemaking than technical brewing, um, which has been great. And the, the kind of people that were interested in our beer at that time, and there wasn't much, there, there was, it was around, um, but it's a small market, uh, and we're a small player in that niche market. Uh, but the kind of people that were naturally drawn to our beer were interested in fermented beverages. They were interested in natural wines. They were interested in, 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 in ciders and sakes and those kinds of things. So we naturally were drawn to, um, to, to those producers and those people. And within that community, the beer sat pretty well next to um, uh, wines. In this case, the, the focus was more on farming um, and, and what happened in the vineyard um, and, and less about what happened in, in, in the winery or, or in, the, in the brewery. Um, we, we pour at more wine festivals than we do beer festivals. Do you, I was getting to, my yeah. next question as a follow-on for that, so like, do you feel closer to the, the, the natural wine community, to the craft beer community? I mean, I'm a brewer and I think when I, what I didn't answer from that initial part is, you know, someone saying I was a frustrated winemaker, it completely misleads and forgets the beauty of beer being a plebeian. Like it is, it is, and this is something that I'm so passionate about, which is why I love pub culture, because it's cheap, it's affordable. You can make, it, it, at its core it should be, um, 
uh, you can make it year-round. It's not so uh, prestigious. And a lot of the winemakers that we work with are similar in that. You know, they don't they don't view wine as this kind of like um, thing that you should as a commodity that is bought and sold. I mean, it's crazy the market of wine and the value of wine. Some wines being more valuable than gold in terms of how quickly they appreciate. It's crazy. Um, so that's what I, I'm truly passionate about beer um, because of that. But um, I, we've, I don't know if we find ourselves at home in one place more there than another. Um, we have friends across the board, and I think we're really lucky to have amazing places. There's a really great bar in in Melbourne called Bar Liberty, um, which reminds me a lot of Corto. Um, and it's an amazing restaurant, um, incredible food. Uh, you can easily uh, go drink goose um, or natural wine at the exact same spot. And it's been like that since we started, you know, back in 2015. Um, and we have a certain group of um, Soms, uh, men and women from uh, around Australia, who have, who have just, it's just clicked for them, I think, at the time. And so the, the way that beer is sold in Australia as well is usually directly from producer to, to, um, to, um, um, to venue, to venue. So you don't have people working with a beer distributor or a wine distributor as their main suppliers. Every venue can set up accounts with whoever they like, um, and that I think has created a space in venues across Australia where you can just supply the things that you, or so shop. I'm sorry, sell the things that you like. And we're fortunate to have a group of people that are really keen on drinking diversely, and, and so I think we're quite lucky there. So I think in terms of, um, I do we work extensively with a lot of different winemakers. Um, in fact, I'm really sad. We didn't. We just released a, another beer with um, Dane and Hannah from Memento Mori um, and Nikau Farm the, Wines. They make wonderful um, wines. In fact, Johnny uh, <laughs> Hamilton, Bellicle, uh, Memento Mori, it might be his favorite winemaker. He's a huge really? fan, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, they're, they're, they're great people um, and good friends. Um, but uh, we work a lot with, with them. We work with people in the Barossa. We work with people in... Um, about in New South Wales, particular particular producer that we Ravensworth, Brian and Justin Martin, who we um, who we used their smoked tainted grapes um, in 2020, like their entire harvest, uh, which was set to be cast out because of the, the grapes were smoked tainted. We made a, um, a huge number of beers with them that year to say to, to do that. So we work probably more closely with winemakers because I don't do many collaborations, as it were, in in the beer world. Um, but I'm very much part of the beer community in Australia. Um, I'm, you know, we're members of our independent brewer association. It's a great community. It's a great community, and and I, and I think to 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 portray them as, as 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 left and right. Not that you have, but in just in terms of someone's mind, as these two separate things is is incorrect. I mean, I really think we need to work together in the same way that our, that our customers drink our beers alongside wines and sake. So, um, yeah, no, I. I I think um no los dos. It's interesting thinking about this, Katie. Like in the UK, people are definitely more tribal with what they drink. Do you not think? Like what what Tofu was just describing, how people oh I like this fermentation of character of, of drinks like this. Like so because there are natural wine drinkers in the UK. Mm-hmm. They drink Cantillon, yeah. but they don't really like explore uh, mixed fermentation and, and spontaneous fermentation Outside beers. Of that. So yeah. and maybe you can speak more about this as a bar owner because you see people coming in and trying. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a, a bar where you can come and try cider wine and beer. So how does that look to you, Katie? You are right in that people are kind of, they're not stuck in their ways, but they, they know what they like and they're quite adamant about that. So if you're like trying to encourage them to try something new, people can be very like, well, I know what I like, so why are you telling me to do something else? It becomes, um, and 
it becomes something like um, not actually a pleasant conversation sometimes. It's just like I'm trying to tell them what to do, which is not the case. Mm-hmm. It's not all the time, but some it does happen more of, like more often than you'd think. I'm trying to tell people, you know, like if you like cider, then maybe you would like the sour beer, for example. It's mm. got a similar character profile. It's got, you know, this, a similar sort of acidity level. It, I think you would really appreciate it. The fact that it's got the word beer in it means they're absolutely not going to do that. And no matter mm. if they like it or not, they're going to tell me they hate it. Mm. And it's the same with some wines, even the style of wine. Some people just won't drink anything but a certain style of wine. People won't drink a certain style of beer other than what they call a bitter, which is anything on cash. <laughs> Like, it just, it, it here is very specific as well. We're in a small town in the northwest of England. We are getting there with people trying new things, but it's a very cask-led town. Um, people know what they like, and often that's not what we have. So it's just, it's a strange one. Um, it's interesting. Like, Australia, you know, Sydney, Melbourne have always been quite progressive with beverage, mm-hmm. whether it's wine, beer, coffee. Yeah, I mean, coffee culture, mm. you know, Australia and New Zealand redefined it globally and never seem to get the credit. But, um, uh, well, I'm sure they do. But it's, it's interesting how uh, you talk about how there are, you know, too much just trying to sell the beer and make sure people are taking this home. Uh, and it, it feels like people are more open minded to the kind of uh, beverages you're producing. We're, we're, we're really lucky. I think a big part when we started. Um, the brewery we focused on a lot was education. We definitely came out of the gates thinking this is going to be a tough sell. Um, and what we were pleasantly surprised about is by having a cellar door, you know, in amongst uh, other breweries, we've been able to kind of stay pretty true to ourselves and say, if someone comes and say, what's, what do you serve? We say, this is what we have. Um, if you don't want that, if you want a Pelo and IPA, there's a, a, there's a handful of incredible breweries within another five minutes and you're more than welcome to go there. We don't require your custom um, in some ways, and we're not going to cater for everyone. We're going to stay still doing what we what we think is right, and we'll just stay at a level of um, um, like volume every year. We make about sixty thousand liters of beer a year, right? Um, six hundred hectoliters for anyone over here, um, and about ninety percent of that goes through extended aging in oak. So we are quite small. Um, relatively and we'll say well, we'll just keep that level to where um, it, it's it's organically taken up we don't have any sales reps we don't have anyone like that on the field there's, there's four of us full time five five, yeah. five of us full time at the brewery so it's it's, it's a small little spot um, but also in the same way the way that we talk about the beers is potentially a little different than many others but don't come out of the gates telling you it's a sour beer um, because this is this is really important as yeah. well because in, in in the cellar door your tap room you you have uh, you, you call beers acid beers uh, to describe that yeah so well we we're, we're <laughs> we were talking about before I was sort of going through a, an arc in terms of how we talk about our beer um, um, because it's it's not something that fits snugly within a style at all um, and we haven't been I haven't felt hindered by style in a way that makes me want to make a beer to style. And by hindering me, I'm like, I'm, I don't feel that I have to do that in order to make something that is tasty. And in fact, we're probably more focused on the way that the raw materials just express themselves through a fermentation and allow that to be whatever it is. And then um, by focusing on the the beginning, the, 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 the agriculture and the way that we handle those raw materials, that's just what makes the beers. What style they are, I don't care. I mean, I don't know, whatever you want. So we do describe them more based on their flavor profiles 
and then on the on the um, the bottles themselves, we're probably more and more working towards just describing the way that they're made, um, rather than, and what they're made with, um, rather than uh, sort of um, breaking it down to a single couple words. So yes, at the brewery we have we call them bitter beers. Those are the younger beers that are hopped a little bit bigger, which we which we call this organic table beer to be one of them. Um, and then we have used this term acid beer in the past of like. Uh, those are beers that spend extended time in aging. Um, we've actually stopped doing that at the brewery now, and we just put them in a list. Um, and then people come, and we have an amazing team um, at our cellar door led by um, Nimisha, who's come on recently uh, in the team. Um, she's from Adelaide, and is, she's incredibly knowledgeable about beer, and she's so welcoming for people to come in and explain the different nuances between the beer. and. I mean, I'd say 95% of the time, someone's going to find something on that tap list of eight, eight or nine beers that we're pouring at the time that they'll enjoy. Um, because we'll have a variety of beers like this, the organic table beer, we'll have our golden beer, which is 100% barrel edged. Uh, we'll have something with fruit and then we have something generally a bit darker. Um, and there's always something there. And I, I think I am, I'm, I'm with you, Katie, in the sense that like, um, and I think we were talking before, there might be a beer for everyone, and I, but I'm not gonna, we're not going to push that down the throat. We make ciders um, at the brewery that we serve there as well. We also make some wine every year that we serve at the brewery. Uh, we don't bottle it outside of ourselves, just in case at the same time someone knows that they are firmly in one camp or not. Who are we to tell you that you're wrong? Um, but also, if you are willing to take a punt, uh, here are some things to taste. If you're not at all and you want a pale ale, the Grifter is just down the road, you know, and they're amazing, amazing, amazing breweries. So I think the, the way that we talk about it, I think has also changed the approach. I mean, we, nowhere on this beer does it tell you that it's even mixed vulture beer. And I think this is, I'm sorry, I picked up the table beer can. It doesn't say it anywhere on it. I mean, it says our brand, like Wildflower, but it has no, it makes no reference to um, the yeast because I think at some stage, these were the beers pre-1890 that everyone drank. This is common. This should be commoner. So by elevating it too much with language, we can actually put people away sometimes. Mm. It's interesting to me that you know you, you you make beers that are very much of your yourselves of wildflower, but there's also you, you you feel quite sympathetic to the beers being of Australia, and this is something you've been quite careful and conscientious to make sure because you're using uh, native yeast from wildflowers. Yeah. So how important is that connection to? Australia and, and being sympathetic to Australia yeah. to you as a brewer. I mean, it, this is a, this is a really the, whether you know it or not. What you've asked is a massive question that has a really oh, long. That's why I want to know. Okay, it's, okay. It's, it's fascinating. So, um, but I, it's because it's a challenging question as well. Like, yeah. like because I know this is something we've spoken of before, and you yeah. want to do it right. Australia was colonized and invaded in the 1700s. Um, and uh, ownership of that land uh, was never seceded um, to uh, the Westerners that came. And um, there is a movement uh, within Australia to recognize that ownership of um, not only the land, um, but also the many um, plants and foods uh, that have been uh, managed incorrectly from European standpoints. And again, I'm trying to be very careful with words here. Um, um, but there's a movement to at least acknowledge um, what's uh, what was taken away and what we're trying, what um, some people uh, would like to um, celebrate. I think a little bit more. So we we do call our beers Australian wild ales at the moment, um, but I've always struggled with that term. Uh, we called them that to start, 
um, because I felt like it was an, an easy way and a quick description. Um, but if I have to be truly honest with myself, uh, barley is itself is an introduced species. Hops are an introduced species. Um, and beer itself is not something that has found a home. It, was, it is not from Australia. Um, this is a, a European um, method of production that we have just taken our ingredients, put them into the ground, which is not catered for the, the soils are not catered for these types of production, which is why you have so much chemical um, agriculture in Australia trying to grow uh, barley that was, you know, from European soils on a, on a landmass that never had an ice age. So you don't have the sort of breakdown of minerals that in the soil. So, um, uh, so at the same time, I do struggle with that. I mean, we call them Australian wild oats because the sense of the, the, the yeast came from native flowers. And of course, when I, when I came to Australia, one of the things that was so... The, 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 the origin of the brewery was the fact that the, the flowers were so different. So maybe to also the microflora. The flowers are different, so maybe also the microflora. So let's give um, Mother Nature a chance to express herself in a way that only can be done in this area. What I've come to learn over the past few years um, of, of making the beer is that um, flower fermentations are not something new in Australia at all. Um, there are language groups in Western Australia that have uh, documentation of using Banksia flour um, as not only an inoculant, but also a sugar source for uh, ceremonial um, drinks. So the idea that there was no alcohol production in um, Australia pre-colonization is, again, another completely Eurocentric uh, viewpoint. And the idea that um, uh, First Nations people have some sort of genetic disposition to not be able to consume alcohol is bluntly racist. Mm. Um, it's completely untrue, but we, we um, have learned about this through an amazing wine writer, I'm sure you know, uh, beer and wine writer Max Allen in, um, in um, Melbourne. And he's mentioned this and we've been able to, to, to look into a little bit more. And the idea of flower fermentation was something that we kind of fell into. And now I feel this great duty to respect even more because spontaneous fermentation in Belgium probably has a 300 year, 400 year um, uh, history at best. Um, but these types of fermentations with flowers in Australia uh, from the oldest living the oldest civilization in the world that happens to still be exist that happens to like incredibly and against pretty much all odds still exists and we can learn from um, the First Nations people of Australia the original Australians um, have been doing these types of fermentations for over 60,000 years so what is new what is traditional what is um, uh, historic brewing um, by any means and so um, you're right in the sense that uh, I do we want our beers to be firmly planted in a place, um, but we're also um, struggling with the, um, I suppose, appropriation of that entirely. Things that we do, I mean, on all of our beers, you would notice, actually it doesn't have it on the table beer, which is interesting. Um, I didn't never even notice that until now. All of our bottled beers have an acknowledgement of country in terms of uh, an acknowledgement of whose land our beer is made on. And if we bring in fruit um, or things from, from different, different lands, um, different areas of, of New South Wales will acknowledge the traditional landowners of those um, of, the, um, of, that, of those parts of the country as well um, and also there is a small native grain movement happening in Australia so people looking at 
um, grains that had been grown on that landmass for uh, like long, long before um, the first domesticated uh, wheat or barley was planted. And they're very interestingly, these are perennial grains, um, so they're sown once, and then they might be opportunistic. Maybe it takes a fire or something like that for them to regrow. But something like kangaroo grass will harvest. You could harvest seven times without, without needing to till or go over. So they're incredibly um, um, ecological grains as well, and they um, they uh, grow very well in in the soil that Australia has, of course, because they're native to there. We work. We, we are working. We, well, anyway, we have a relationship with um, groups. Uh, a group that is owned, that is entirely owned by um, uh, First Nations people who are growing that and attempting to remember, essentially attempting to re-figure um, uh, out, like to figure out again how these grains were harvested, because there are so many documentations of early um, colonial settlers coming up on entire swaths of fields that are um, planted, like there, indigenous Australians weren't, weren't, weren't hunter-gatherers, um, as the story goes, again, it's pretty much a racist idea. Um, they were uh, agricultural, there was farming happening in certain places, they obviously, they also weren't moving around heaps, um, they had uh, annual crops um, that were able to be managed through fire and then they were making breads with, with these grains. Um, and a lot of that, that knowledge has been lost. So there's, there is a movement and a group that's really working on that very, very hard. At this stage, I don't use any native grains in beers, and we've only used a handful of native ingredients in beers because of, again, my fear of appropriation of that once again. Um, so it's, it's, it's a little bit, I think, I, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm giving myself an out because I'm like, oh, I don't have to engage with that because um, it's just like a, a chef who's gonna take a beef wellington and finish it with finger lines or something like that. Like none of that dish and originally comes from where you're like, you know, sort of taking that finger line from and putting it on the top. Um, but it's certainly something I think for the future that we'll be, we'll be we're active in it right now. Um, but uh, I don't think initially beer is the product to be made from those, those raw materials. Beer, in the same way that we're having a conversation about um, the, um, the uh, invasion of Australia over beer, beer is a conduit for me still of being able to talk about agriculture at this stage and hopefully in the future more talk about um, the types of uh, foods that we should be eating in a country such as Australia. I mean, beef and sheep don't Makes sense there. We should we should be eating more kangaroo. To be honest, um, uh, wheat. Uh, these native grains should make up. I mean, I, I, the 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 company, the group that we're sort of have a relationship with, um, who's working on understanding how to well refiguring out how to harvest and, and process these native grains. Would like to see native grains become a staple item in the supermarket in the same way that. It's like taking up you know a percentage of the cereal sales in Australia. So. Um, I, I don't know what we'll call it in the future if we ever have the opportunity and we're ever um, sort of feel comfortable with the reality of making beer with these ingredients. Um, or sorry, it won't be beer. I don't know what we'll call it. Hopefully it'll be something entirely different. Um, but we'll, in the meantime, we'll be, um, we'll, we'll be active participants um, in, the, in the background. I think is essentially where I'm at. And I'm being a little coy about that because I don't want to, um, you know, beat our chests about the people that we work with and the, and the, and the relationships that we have. It means nothing right now. All of these things are, are um, in the sort of, not say the background, they're very important to me, um, but it's not something that I wish to uh, gain um, credit for at this stage.
<laughs> ever really but yeah and I think you do deserve some credit because you're you, you're incredibly conscientious about your beer making and, 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 and where that comes from what does the future look like for Wildflower or at least uh, Topher and Chris what do you hope the future looks like for Wildflower this trip's been really um, important in a lot of ways um, uh, for me um, seeing all these places and drinking these beers that, that Topher um, first talked about when we um, started the business um, seeing what Seeing behind the curtain um, of all this, these 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 amazing amazing breweries and in, in, in Australia, it's, it's either very hard to get some of the beers that we've tried, or it's very expensive. So to kind of go and meet the people behind these breweries that aren't actually their profile is very big, but the brewery itself is 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 is, is not um, in terms of how much beer they make, it's not actually that big. Uh, and then to go behind the curtain and see the kind of people. Um, making the kind of beer that they do and what they focus on internally as uh, and what they think how they define their own success which is different for everyone so it's become a really like pivotal time for us as a brewery um, we've kind of been around for six or seven years getting the work making contraptions big thing for us uh, it took time but everything I like how you call it the work making contraption not the brewery <laughs> yeah and it, look everything takes time at Wildflower mm. which I think is a good thing We're, everyone's busy too busy life moves very quickly so the beer slows us down as, as a business as people so coming over here and, and seeing um, breweries that are, have been in, in Belgium in particular that have this all this history around beer and lambic and and where they feel like they fit in um, some brews are, are very old some are very new um, some are family owned some aren't um, what makes the people behind those beers tick um, has, has been great and I think it'll we'll, we'll go back to to family to work but I think I'll certainly what's been your takeaway then? Um, the, uh, the, the not with, we make mixed culture beer in Australia which in a lot of ways can be seen as out of place but we have our we've thought we've found our own place uh, and, and are comfortable with what we do but then how do we um, how do we keep doing that um, and in a way that's good for ourselves and our family right um, sustainability and, yeah well, and, and that it can be um it can be done and just continuing to do on paper the same thing can be a, a successful um, outcome. Um, Notwithstanding, we, we, we just make beer, we just make this small amounts of the same kind of beer, that can be something that we, we're, we're happy with and content with. And the, the idea of, of wanting more of what you have is, is, is okay. I, I don't talk about it very much because I find it really embarrassing, but it's probably the best way to answer the question, is that I, I think about this um, when in a series from one point to another do things tip. So when does something become um, classic? When do the classic breweries, when are they allowed to do that? How do you, how do you what does a legacy look like? Something like that. Mm. How, you know, how does a beer become emblematic of place or a people or a town and 
Um, the breweries, the brewers, and the beers that I love are tend to do that. I mean, they, there's something so um, inextricably tied to the place and people that they have. It has to just be there, you know. Um, and so, our future looks exactly very similar to our past. I think because. Again, it's embarrassing because I don't, I'm not here saying like I want to be a classic thing or whatever. But the people that inspire me the most have things that they do so so well by doing them over and over and over again. And that's where I like. That's where we'd like to be as well. Um, we have we have. Uh, it's a family business, um, and I would like to be operating as a business um, at a point where uh, our kids, if any of them chose to do it, we would have the the business in a position that was like healthy for them to take up as a, as a job if they so wanted um, but never do we want to get ourselves to back-ended in a way where we have to work for the business you know we, we don't want to get back-ended in this in the sense where we're no longer free to be working for ourselves and in, in a way that um, if we need to let it go because there's other things like being a parent um, that become more important uh, in, in so important in a way that um, we cannot physically do the brewery as well. We we want to make sure we're in the position to be able to walk away from it um, if, if need be. So I know for myself, at least, the, per, the past six years have been pretty mental, to be honest. Um, we started a brewery. I've had three kids within that time with my, with my basic wife. I mean, she, our, our wives, should, should be said, um, are really the only reason that this place is possible. Um, because of their support and and um, confidence and trust in, in just doing what we're able to do, and I hope that in the future I'll be able to take a step away from where things are, or at least um, be able to offer that same thing back to my wife Bernadette as a teacher. She's a really teacher. She's not choosing to not teach at the moment because of the age of our kids, but I'd like to be able to switch that back and for her to push um, into her career as hard as she's allowed me to. I think that's a wonderful place to, to leave this conversation and, and maybe head down into the bar and pour a few bottles to the, the people who, I bet they're keen downstairs. Katie, thank you for joining us. You're uh, very welcome. Uh, Thanks for uh, participating. Topher, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you for taking the time to come to the UK and drink nice pints of bitter. Uh, I it's appreciate awful. you. So, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Thanks for having me. I think one of my favourite things about making this podcast is that when I record an interview like that, when I'm actually asking the questions, I'm so focused on what I'm asking and trying to keep things flowing that I don't really soak it all in. Listening back to that just now, I'm really pleased to have such an in-depth conversation with two people that are so thoughtful about the way they approach beer making. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I tried to keep these shows under an hour though and we are well over that now so I'm going to leave it there but I will just say that if you enjoy content like this then support us with a subscription and you can sign up to support Pellicle at patreon.com forward slash Mag or if you can't afford a subscription then just make sure you're subscribing in your podcast app and leave us a review as that helps people who might enjoy this podcast find it more easily. 
That's it from me this time around, but I'll be back in the next two or three weeks with yet another interview with the owners and head brewer from Tap Social Brewery in Oxford. So stay tuned for that. Until then, I've been Matthew Curtis and you have been listening to the Pellicle Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Bye bye.